Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a word of prayer. We will uh, give you all a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9. If necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's, we come to you this evening recognizing that we've had a tremendous privilege in this nation to live in a nation with a history of freedom, an understanding of liberty and recognition that, that it is only in an environment of genuine liberty that people are free to fully pursue their spiritual gifts and spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we uh, continue as a nation that you would continue to protect us and that you would continue to provide for us. And as we face so many crises that seem looming on the national uh, stage, both from foreign enemies and domestic problems, we recognize, too, that often when these things are there, it's designed to gain, gain the attention of the people in the country to focus on genuine priorities and basic realities. Same is true in our own personal lives that so often we become complacent spiritually and we tend to focus on what we have and let that distract us from what we are to be doing in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So, Father, we continue to pray for our nation as we go through this election cycle. We pray for uh, the guidance and wisdom. We pray that you would be overseeing the process. Father, in our own lives, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might be open to what the word teaches, recognizing the principles that are here that you have revealed and preserved down through the centuries, for they are here for our spiritual benefit that we might learn and grow thereby. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study tonight in 1 Kings chapter 10, which is a great study and a continuation of what we saw last time in 1 Corinthians 9 as we see a, the, the description of how richly God blessed Israel and God blessed Solomon. But before we get into the details of the 10th chapter of 1 Kings, I want to focus your attention on a passage in Deuteronomy. Recognizing the principle that we've seen so many times as we've studied through these Old Testament books is that to understand the Old Testament, the, from at least from Joshua on to the end of the Old Testament, you have to understand the framework of the Mosaic Law. For the history of Israel, the message of the prophets, and the prophecies about Israel's future are all, all grow out of that which is revealed in the Mosaic Law. And especially as you go through the books that we call historical books, the books of Samuel, Kings, and, and uh, Chronicles, 
that go through what happened historically in Israel. It is designed to teach about the reality of spiritual principles within the the activities of the nation, within the life of the nation, within the health of the nation. And a principle I keep coming back to is that we have to recognize that in, in Western civilization, we have bought into, whether you under, realize it or not, and to varying degrees, uh, you've all bought into this. We've all been affected by this because we've grown up in this post-enlightenment, modern uh, framework of the last 300 years that, we can, that man can pretty much analyze through the process of observation and developing various hypotheses and theories and testing these theories, the man can figure out how to control uh, the things that go on in our world. We can control economics. We can control politics. We can control many different things because as we apply the scientific method and logic and reason to things that go on in the world, we can, we can discern how these things actually work, and we can create hard and fast laws and principles that as long as we follow them, then we can, we can have success and we can have uh, <clears throat> prosperity. The problem with this is it leaves out a whole n- non-observable phenomenon, which is the spiritual realm. And as, in, even if you do everything right in, in a certain sense according to a certain textbook, if the spiritual reality isn't there of that relationship with God within the people that gives them the capacity for freedom, the capacity for responsibility, the, the capacity to make good decisions, then even if you have certain things in place, there will be a divine judgment on that group of people, either that because it's built into the way God has structured reality, so that if you violate uh, you'll, you'll, if you're, if you're out of fellowship, if you're operating on human viewpoint principles, if you're operating on relativistic principles based on a false foundation, eventually this, the, your house of cards is going to collapse. And if you, and, and the, the, the unseen factor in there is the spiritual reality. And when you go through the life of Israel, you see at times that they did a lot of things that were right. And they had tremendous success, and they had a lot of, at times they were disobedient to God, and God disciplined them. And when we look at the life of Solomon, we see someone who has tremendous wisdom, and there is such tremendous success in the early part of his ministry, I mean, not ministry, but in the early part of his reign, and as he develops uh, the nation. But pride gets in, and he gets away from God. And as a result of that, it sets the stage for collapse. But the collapse doesn't occur under Solomon. It occurs after he dies. And that, unfortunately, is what happens a lot of times in history, is that a nation can make a series of bad decisions and not realize those decisions are bad because the consequences aren't felt for two or three decades. And because they aren't felt for two or three decades, what often happens is those bad decisions are compounded by more bad decisions. That not only happens in a nation, it happens with individuals. There are times we go through our lives and we make bad decisions, but and we know it's bad, but nothing happened. We think we get away with it, and the next time we do it, the next time we do it, pretty soon we become slovenly in our spiritual life and we become complacent and we don't think anything's going to happen, and what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for failure 
because there are unintended and unseen immediate consequences that, that continue to, to uh, affect what is happening in our lives. And all of a sudden, 10 or 20 years down the road, we wake up and we have serious problems because we were uh, doing things wrong for 10 or 20 or 30 years. We see an evidence of that in Solomon. I want to start by going back to the principle that's laid down for the rule of the king in Deuteronomy 17. Remember, when Deuteronomy is given by Moses, it is a rehearsal, as it were, of the law, a reminder of the Mosaic Covenant and what God had promised to do in terms of blessing them and in terms of judgment if they were disobedient. And within the structure of the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, you have a provision for a king. And yet, when it was given... There was no king in Israel. God was the king. So we see from Deuteronomy that God clearly envisioned giving them a human king, but it would not be right away. They jumped the gun, which is why they got Saul. So the provisions are given in Deuteronomy 17:14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are uh, around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Then in verse 16, but he shall not. And so starting in verse 16, we have prohibitions, things that the king should not do, warnings. And these warnings have an application to anyone in a position of executive power in any nation. And it is basically a warning not to confuse the prestige of the office with personal prestige and not to use your position of power and authority to accrue to yourself wealth and riches and power. And he said, first of all, but he shall not multiply horses. The reason I've highlighted some of these phrases is because these are the areas where Solomon directly disobeys the prohibitions in the Mosaic Law. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Quit looking to Egypt for any kind of aid. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. It's a direct prohibition of polygamy. Every now and then, just as a side note, every now and then, uh, this issue comes up about polygamy in the Old Testament, and you have people who try to argue that, well, see, God didn't just stamp it out. He didn't uh, prohibit it. Well, this is a clear prohibition in, among the monarchy, and that's basically where it happened was among uh, the aristocracy, and it was never viewed as something positive. In fact, every time you have anybody practicing polygamy in the Old Testament, it always caused problems. But you don't have that many people, especially before the monarchy, who did practice polygamy. Abraham didn't. Uh, Isaac didn't. Jacob did, only because of the deception with his first wife, Leah. Um, later on, uh, Joseph doesn't. This is not a normative practice among the patriarchs of Egypt. Yet Usually you'll hear people make that, that kind of statement. So there's no biblical basis whatsoever for justifying uh, polygamy. So the kings were prohibited from multiplying wives for themselves, lest his heart turn away. And when we get to 1 Kings 11, 1, that's exactly what happens to Solomon for that reason. 
nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. That This is one of those verses you can easily misread, unlike like the verse over in, uh, I think it's in First uh, Timothy 6, that, that the love of money is the root of all evil. People often misquote, say money's the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money. The love for money that's the root of all evil. Greed and avarice, that is the root, root of all evil. And here it's the same principle. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold, for himself, it's not against him becoming wealthy. It's using his position of power to accumulate wealth for himself as an end in and of itself for himself. Verse 18. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, here's the positive part, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. That is the key principle. And we'll see that with Solomon. He learns that. He learns it as a young man. It characterizes his life as a young man. It is a reason when, when God asks him, says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he asks for wisdom. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for revenge on his enemies. He asks for... Wisdom, because he fears the Lord. And as Solomon writes in Proverbs 1, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And then if we were to go read Ecclesiastes, which is his after-action report on his uh, going out and trying to find happiness in everything in life other than God, he comes back to this principle that the key element in life is to fear the Lord, just very basic, just to recognize that the Lord is the one in control. Fear the Lord is God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. That's arrogance, that he not cave in to thinking that he is someone in and of himself, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now, that's part of the backdrop is understanding that command for Solomon because Solomon is going to illustrate by the things that he does and the way he violates these prohibitions, he's going to be the perfect illustration of why those prohibitions are there. The next thing that we have to understand in terms of a background is what we looked at last time in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When God appeared to Solomon the first time, two times he appeared to Solomon, the first time he appears to Solomon to uh, give him whatever he requests. And we're told, as a backdrop to that first appearance, we're told Solomon's uh, spiritual status. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. His focus is on the Lord completely. And as Deuteronomy points out, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. So this emphasis on obedience and walking in his statutes and knowing the word and obeying it isn't legalism. Now, some people get that idea. I've heard that years ago. Well, you know, all this stuff, but you've got to do everything the Bible says. That's just legalism. Well, it's only legalism if you're doing it to try to curry favor with God. You can have two people doing the same thing. 
One person's doing it out of legalism. The other person's doing it just out of obedience to the word because that's what the word says. But they're still, they're both doing the same thing. You can pray. You can go to Bible class. You can memorize scripture. You can witness all out of legalism and it's just wood, hay, and straw. Or you can do it because that's the product of your spiritual growth and your relationship to God. And then it's gold, silver, and precious stones because it's part of the fruit of the spirit. First Kings 3.11, God said to Solomon, because you've asked this thing, wisdom, and not anything else, I'm going to give you everything else. I'm going to give you riches. Uh, I'm going to give you long life. I'm going to give you all this, and I'm going to make you a king unlike anyone else. At the end of verse 12, he says, So there has been no one like you before you, nor shall anyone uh, arise like you uh, after you. Verse 13, I have also given you what you have not asked, riches and honor, so there will not be any among the kings like all your days. Point, the test that's going to come Solomon's way is the test of prosperity. And it's the test that is going, that he's going to fail. It is the test that very few people have ever passed. And it's the test that no nation has ever passed. And I think it's important to think through the test of prosperity in terms of where we are as a nation, because as a nation, we have failed the prosperity test. No nation in history has had the prosperity and the blessing from God that the United States of America has had over the last hundred years. And yet in the midst of that prosperity, in the midst of that provision from God and all that we have had, and that doesn't mean that everything that we did was right or anything like that, is simply recognizing God's, God's placing us in a unique position. At the same time, there have been elements within our culture that have their roots even back into the 19th century that while we were enjoying our greatest prosperity, there was already erosion at the foundation and the termites of Darwinism, secularism, materialism were already eating away at the inner structure of American society. And the major turn occurred about 1963, and it's always interests me how many people, whether they're secular, whether they're Christian, whoever they are, will benchmark 1963 as the turning point in American culture. And it doesn't mean that, that it, it didn't turn the corner, it didn't go from white to black overnight, but there was a gradual deterioration that occurred for about 75 to 100 years prior to 1963, and it just culminates in 1963 through a series of things that happened, and then really after 1963, Sidney Alstrom, who was the head of the uh, uh, religious history department at Yale, called it after 1963, we entered the post-Puritan era. In other words, Puritan theology, in the good sense, its impact on American culture in terms of personal responsibility, uh, Protestant work ethic, uh, level of morality, and orientation toward God, at least in terms of a civic religion in the United States, all of these things basically came to an end in 1963. Prayers taken out of the schools, a uh, number of other things happen, uh, different uh, Supreme Court rulings. You also have uh, a number of other things that, that uh, all come together at that particular time. And it just has become increasingly worse since then. And now that we live in a 
era, uh, it's not really postmodern, it's just ultra-modernism. We're taking everything, all the ideas that began to dominate during that period from the early 1800s up into the mid, uh, mid-20th century. We're taking all of those ideas and just carrying them to their extreme conclusion that there are no absolutes and man can just do whatever he wants to. And we see this, and it impacts across the philosophical, let's say, political, philosophical spectrum, whether you're talking about conservatives or liberals. They cave into this mentality of arrogance, and we see examples of it as we have seen the... um, the the economy go through the the problem recently with the and we're still feeling the ripples of the of the problem with the in the mortgage industry and as soon as we start having a problem the mentality is that we can fix it how arrogant and so they they try to do something to fix the problem and that just generates more problems the law of unintended uh, consequences comes in and uh, different things like that. And this has been going on. It's not just this Republican administration. It's Democrat administration. You go back to 1933 and all the things that FDR put into place to try to solve the problem of the Great Depression, probably extended it two or three years, and most of the things that he did were declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court by 1940. So it really didn't help. And you just can't man can't get his fingers dirty trying to solve these problems. That's just the height of arrogance. But that's what happens in prosperity, is we elevate ourselves thinking that somehow we did something to produce what we have and who we are, and then when uh, a little adversity comes along, we think we can actually solve it on our own, and we're now totally divorced from God, and we're going to generate our our own punishment. Solomon shows how it happens in the life of an individual, and uh, it also plays out in the life of a nation. So let's go to 1 Kings 10.1. 1 Kings, starting in 1 Kings 9, in verse 9, verse 15, the focus shifted to Solomon's additional achievements. And this is not necessarily provided for us in a chronological order, but it is a summary of the magnificence of Solomon's kingdom, of the wealth of Solomon's kingdom, of the expansiveness of Solomon's kingdom, of his control. Solomon had a a nation that sat astride all the major trade routes in the ancient world, as I pointed out last time, and he was able to uh, sit there and and act as a uh, a middleman for commerce, and also in the process, uh, assign various tariffs and various duties and bring in additional income to the nation. He sent out his navy that went on three-year voyages. We have no idea how far they went, but they were uh, manned by sailors from uh, Phoenicia. And so they had tremendous skills, and they brought back all manner of remarkable things along with uh, gold and silver that just continue to provide for the wealth of the nation. And all of this is because of what God promised. Ultimately, it had nothing to do with Solomon's own ability or with the basic technology, education, and skill of the people. That is a byproduct of their spiritual orientation. 
Now, we went through that last time. We just summarized his building programs. We summarized his um, uh, the, the, the naval merchant marine aspect. And then in Chapter 10, we come into one of the most interesting little episodes that we find in the Old Testament. This is the visit to Israel of a personage who has some wealth and power and prestige in the ancient world, but we're not given her name. She is identified as the Queen of Sheba, and even to, to this day there is a lot of debate over the exact location of Sheba. The predominant opinion is that it was located down in this uh, southern tip of the Saudi Peninsula here, what is now modern Yemen. That's the predominant view that this is the location of the place in the ancient world known as uh, Saba. It's mentioned as the Sabaeans in the first uh, uh, chapter of Job. And this is one one place that is the most most commonly identified uh, with the Queen of Sheba. There's others that put her uh, uh, Sheba across the strait here into Ethiopia, Somalia, in that area, into the Sudan. And there are those who claim that uh, <clears throat> she was a queen of Ethiopia. She went up to to uh, Jerusalem. There's this secret marriage. She gets pregnant by Solomon that comes back, has a kid, and takes the Ark of the Covenant down there, and it gets hidden. Those kinds of things crop up. And um, there's no historical evidence of that whatsoever. There are those, such as Emmanuel Velikovsky, who have put forth very uh, interesting theories that uh, the Queen of Sheba was actually Hatshepsut uh, of, of Egypt. The way he gets there is because he, because of his attempt to redo the structure of Egyptian chronology. And if you're not aware of that, I've taught on that some before. Egyptian chronology, traditional Egyptian chronology, has a number of problems with it, and it's built on some false assumptions. And so most of you are probably taught that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was either Thutmose III or Minotep IV, and that um, the daughter of Pharaoh who took Moses out of the river was Hatshepsut. And according to a number of Egyptologists today, that's probably, at the very least, wasn't even born until about the time that Moses took the Jews out. And she may have not even lived until 200 years later. Uh, some have, uh, I think, Velikovsky put, you know, shrunk the time frame of Egyptian chronology too much. But there are others who will add, uh, shrink it by somewhere between two and 350. We have, let me restate that, we have somewhere between... 200 and 350, too many years in Egyptian chronology. In other words, we've got some some uh, dynasties that uh, we put as successive, and they really overlap. So what that does is it means we have too many years, and we need to shrink it some. And so, but there's a tremendous amount of debate over that, and every decade somebody else comes up with a new scheme, and your traditionalists who are 
pretty close in their mentality to Darwinists. If you saw the film Expelled, they just don't like their traditional chronological scheme challenged. Uh, so they they rise up in arms against that. So there's a lot of problems there. My point is we don't know who she was, but she probably comes from some area down here. But with what she brought with her as tribute to Solomon, she was a person who came from a nation that had tremendous wealth. She was very well educated. She was uh, very uh, intelligent. She thought that, that uh, she'd heard the reputation of Solomon, that he was the most a brilliant, intelligent man in the ancient world, and that is going some. And so she thought that she could come and challenge him and test his brilliance. Well, that tells you something about her mentality. She, the way she's presented in just these few verses seems to be that she is, has a measure of humility, so she's not coming out of arrogance. She's coming to want to learn, perhaps, but she thinks that but she apparently has a tremendous education and intelligence of her own to be able to come and quiz and test someone of Solomon's stature. So that tells us that she's just not some Bedouin uh, princess coming in off of the desert, but that she represented a culture that valued education and and intelligence. So in First uh, Kings ten one, we read now when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon. Now, if, the, if Sheba is located anywhere down here, which it probably is along the Red Sea, this is the Red Sea extending uh, here, this blue body of water, uh, in Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, or Yemen, any of those areas, then what we saw at the end of chapter 9 was that Solomon's navy is going out the Red Sea and sailing around the world exploring and so as they're leaving and you begin to have the uh, Jewish navy going in and out through the Red Sea, suddenly the name of Solomon is being taken throughout the world. And so she comes to hear of his fame. And so she hears how wonderful he is, hears about his, his wisdom, his brilliance, and she comes to test him with difficult questions. That tells us a lot about her character and about her own ability and her own, her own intelligence. Now, the structure, it's a very interesting structure that we have here in these first ten verses, is they're structured on a chiasm. Structured on a basic chiasm, which is, we've taught before, is like one side of an X. So X marks the emphasis and in a chiasm, you have a ABBA pattern or ABCCBA pattern or ABCBA pattern, something like that, and the middle part is where the emphasis is. So we have for our A pattern in the outline, the first three verses provide us with the introductory narrative as to introducing us to the Queen of Sheba and what she is coming to do in her, her uh, approach, her arrival in uh, Jerusalem. Then in for the B p- pattern, in verses 4 and 5, she observes Solomon's blessings, all the ways that God has uh, blessed Solomon. She sees his wisdom, the house that he's built, the food on the table, the servants, all of this. And then in verses 6 through 9, we have the parallel B prime pattern where she speaks of Solomon's 
blessing. Then she said to the king in verse 6, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. And she now articulates what she has observed in verses 4 and 5. And then we come down to verse 10 and we see the conclusion of the uh, concluding narrative. And so the focus is on these verses, what she observes and what she says in verses 4 through 9. Because what she observes and what she says tells us about the magnificence of Solomon and the way God has so richly blessed him and the uh, Jewish nation during this time. And the, the level of prosperity that they had compared to the rest of the world was unparalleled. And this fulfills God's purpose. This is the closest Israel came to fulfilling God's purpose for them as a missionary nation in the ancient world. The, the idea that God had was that under the Mosaic law, the na- nation would, the people would move into the land, establish the nation, and that as they walked with God, God would prosper them and he would make them, give them wisdom and he would make them wealthy and he would prosper them and they would be a nation of uh, un- unequivocal freedom so that people who came through there, the caravanners and the merchants that traveled throughout the ancient world would come to Israel and they would see this magnificent temple They would see all of the gold and all of the jewels, and they would see the magnificence of the worship of God and the way God had blessed the nation. And they would hear the people teaching their children about God. And and whenever they would stand, whenever they would sit, whenever they would travel, whenever they did anything, they would always be talking about God. And it would be this model uh, culture, this model civilization, and they would just be overwhelmed with how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had blessed him, and then they would go home and tell people. So it wasn't the kind of missionary activity we have in the church age where we send people out, but it was they were to be sent as a model to the whole world, and as all the people would come, they would see God's blessing for Israel and then go back and tell the nations. And that's why God warned them that if they fail, God was going to punish them through the five cycles of discipline, and then all the nations would, instead of declaring praises for how God blessed them, wonder why they had given up so much. So this is, this is how it's working, and the Queen of Sheba has heard the reputation of Israel. She's heard the reputation of Solomon, and so she comes to see it. And in verse 2 we read, So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue. So she has, she has all of her uh, people in attendance. Uh, she has, uh, it's a huge caravan. She has camels with spices and very much gold and precious stones. She has enough to impress Solomon, and Solomon's already very wealthy, and that tells us something about the wealth of her kingdom wherever she, uh, wherever she came from. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And this indicates that there was a measure of intimacy, not in a physical or sexual or romantic way, but that he allowed her to come and sit and converse with him. And they had discussions, and these would have gone on for uh, over a very long period of time, over days or weeks or, or even months. 
And Solomon, we see the grace of Solomon in this. Verse 3 tells us Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. So he, she asked him all of these hard questions about life, uh, about everything from the, what we would call science to philosophy to religion. He answers all of these uh, these questions. She has journeyed around twelve to fifteen hundred miles in order to uh, in order to come uh, come and ask him uh, these questions. Now, as a result of this, she learns about God and she becomes a believer during this particular time. We have an indication of that. We'll look at the passage in a minute uh, from a passage that's recorded, a statement of Jesus in both Matthew and Luke. Then in verse 4, we see her observations. When the king of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, she sees the house that he had built, the palace, the temple to God. She sees the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of the waiters and their attire, how they're dressed, their uniforms, how they comport themselves, all of the pomp and circumstance in the uh, in the palace, his cupbearers, the stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. This is an idiom for the fact that she just, she she gave up. She came somewhat antagonistic. How can we say this is the wisest man in the world? And she comes and she is just overwhelmed with uh, the provision of God and the blessing of God for Solomon. So she says to the king in verse 6, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes saw it. So she must have been from Missouri, maybe. She had to the show me state. She had to find out about it for herself. And behold, she says, the half was not told me. No matter how exaggerated I thought the report was, it, it, it didn't even begin to tell of the wonders of the kingdom. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the, port, the report which I heard. Verse 8, how blessed are your men, how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So that shows the divine viewpoint that she has picked up. She recognizes that Solomon's on the throne. It's not up to him. God has blessed him, God has blessed Israel with him, and the purpose is for him to lead the nation in justice and in righteousness. So she has described uh, all of the blessings, the glory of Solomon. And this fits within the flow of what is being said and described in, Sol- in uh, Kings at this time is to emphasize for us the tremendous prosperity and blessing that God had given to, to Solomon. But... When we look at what he says in Ecclesiastes and what's coming up in chapter 11, we see that the erosion is already there. His heart is already being distracted from the Lord because he, like so many, is already failing the prosperity test by getting his eyes on what God has given him rather than on the Lord. And so she pays him tribute. She gives him tremendous gifts. In verse 10, she gave the king 120 
talents of gold. Now, last time uh, <clears throat> we were talking about how much talents are worth, and you all know that I just, I'm just not real comfortable with numbers and never can add anything together. But part of the reason I didn't have anything added together last time is because nobody's really sure how much a talent was. Some people, we, we have some archaeological remains of some uh, things we've discovered or, or the weight standards for talents, and they vary some from 65 pounds to uh, 80 or 85 pounds. So we're not exactly sure what the weight of a talent was. There wasn't a, a standard a, at this time. So if we just look at a talent and use a somewhat lower estimate of 70 pounds, if a talent is 70 pounds, and this is equivalent to a troy weight of approximately 12 ounces uh, of gold to the pound, then each talent was comprised of 840 ounces. This would mean that 120 talents of gold would be roughly equivalent to $88 million. Now that's on that assumption, those assumptions that I made. But we also have, looking at some other commentaries, there are other variants that are offered. Uh, one commentary suggests uh, four point, this was four, four and a half tons of gold, which would be worth about $94 million. And I've seen, you know, you've seen it go up over a hundred million down to about 75 million. So there's a range, but it gives you some idea in today's dollars how much all of this gold would have been worth. So that's a, that's a nice going away present. And a, tr- and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. So along with the gold, she, she's uh, giving him diamonds and rubies, emeralds, and we're told never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So the whole the impression here is of just the enormous amount of wealth that is coming in to the kingdom. And this is all part of the way that God has blessed Solomon. But this is all that we hear about uh, the the uh, Queen of Sheba. That's it. And we don't know anything more other than one statement by Jesus in Matthew 12:42. The Queen of the South, which where he calls her the Queen of the South, will rise up with this generation. This is in a context of when the Pharisees have rejected him and blamed him for, said that he really uh, uh, cast out demons in the power of Beelzebul. says, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation and at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So it emphasizes her positive volition and how far she was willing to go in order to get the answers to her question. Now, that's real positive volition. And unfortunately, we live in a world today when too many, when people have access to more doctrine and more truth than they've ever had in history. We have the Internet. You can download MP3 files. You can get on and do live streaming from any number of, of solid teachers of the Word of God. We have more available to us in electronic format. You can get all kinds of Bibles and everything else. There's uh, the, the whole Christian 
publishing industry since the mid 70s has has just exploded and in the 80s and 90s before you had the advent of the internet and electronic uh, publications they were co- coming out with repu- republished versions of classics that hadn't been in print in hundreds of years classics from the puritans in the 1600s and 1700s and classics from others in the 1800s. We have more biblical truth available to us today and more rejection of it, more people ignoring it, more people just complacent about it. And that is what happens when a nation, a people, and the church fail the prosperity test, is we take doctrine for granted. We take truth for granted. Once you become complacent about the truth then there is this gradual erosion that takes place inside your soul. And one day you wake up, and 10 years, 20 years has gone by, and the Word of God just isn't as important as to you as it once was. In fact, you may even look around and say, hmm, I wonder why I used to spend so much time going to Bible class and so much time studying the Word. Well, you know, life seems pretty good, and, and I'm not as uh, involved with all of that as I once was, so it must be okay. And all you're doing is gradually watching the basis for your prosperity erode, and then one day you wake up, and that which you thought you had to provide security is gone. Whatever it is, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's money, whether it's the things that money can buy, all of a sudden you wake up and your retirement plan is gone, the house burned down, something happened uh, to the children, the family, and there's nothing there, and that's just God's way of getting us to focus our attention back on him. Now, beginning in 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, verse 11, we continue to read about the way God has prospered uh, Solomon. Verse 11, we read also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir. We don't know where Ophir was located. It could have been in the territory where the Queen of Sheba was. It could have been somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Arabia. Uh, there are suggestions that go as far afield as somewhere up in the area where modern Michigan is, somewhere off of the uh, uh, Great Lakes, somewhere in that area. Uh, there's a, a lot of interesting theories that float around out there. Go out on the Internet and look for some of them. Um, so they brought in great quantities of almagwood, and almagwood was a strong, uh, beautiful wood. It was a rare wood that was uh, brought in, many believe, from India, and it was black on the outside and ruby red on the inside, and it lasted for a, a, a much longer than wood would normally last. It was uh, resistant to any kind of decay or deterioration. And Solomon used it in the temple steps, according to Second Chronicles 9-11, as well as for uh, other purposes, as mentioned here. So they brought in great quantities of almagwood and precious stones from Ophir, and the king made steps of the almagwood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such almagwood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Verse 13, Now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, 
and to her servants. And uh, that's the final summary statement. Then we get into verse 14, and again we see an emphasis on God's blessing and the wealth of the nation, and that's the focus of the remainder of this chapter. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. That is roughly equivalent to about $490 million, or let's just round it off to $500 million in present the present value of gold. That's how much they brought in in the kingdom every every year. Besides that, that's on top of all that came from the customs and the duties and the taxes that they imposed on all of the caravans and merchants that came through the land. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country, that would be also local local taxes. So the revenue that came in annually exceeded uh, $500 million. It could have uh, increased it at least 50% to uh, $750 million a year. So it included uh, many things. Now, this 666... Uh, 666 talents of gold, again, it's, it's valued or it's estimated by different authorities. Some say it's around 25 ton, tons or 50,000 pounds. Others say it's closer to 20, 21 tons. We just can't be precise based on the uh, measurements of that particular time. But this is not unusual for that particular time. Donald Wiseman and now uh, his commentary on this mentions the uh, parallel situations in other cultures. He said those who would consider his income of 666 talents of gold an exaggeration should compare this with amounts registered in ancient Egypt about the same time, where gold is like dust in the land. And Osorkon I, in his first four years, roughly around 924 to 920 B.C., accumulated 18 tons of gold to which some of the loot taken by his father Shishak from Jerusalem uh, should be added. Uh, similar large-scale acquisition and use of gold in temple building is attested from Mesopotamia. So these are not unusually large numbers uh, for that time. But Solomon also used the gold to decorate his palace and to add to his the prestige of the kingdom. He made these decorative shields. He had 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold using three miners of gold on each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. And so the shield that uh, is made from 600 uh, the 600 shekels, notice that's in italics because there's the, that word is not in the original. It's about seven and a half pounds of gold, though, and each small shield was made of three minas, which is about half that, about, 300, three, about three and three-quarter pounds of gold. There's more detail given uh, in the parallel passage in Second Chronicles uh, 9.16. So this provides us an idea of how much gold was available in the kingdom. 
Verse 18, we read, Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps up to the throne and around top to the throne at its rear and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. So he has this extremely ornate uh, throne designed and built for himself, which, of course, bring, he's bringing more and more glory to himself and less to the Lord. Verse 20, 12 lions were standing there on the six steps, on the one side and on the other. So on each side you have six lions, and each one standing for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. There's just so much silver that it's, it's so what? That's how much wealth there was in the nation. For, and verse 22, for the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish, and Tarshish is what we believe is modern Spain. Again, that was a Phoenician colony. So their, their ships are going throughout the Mediterranean, probably out through the Straits of Gibraltar to other ports in both Africa and in Western Europe. But the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. And this is just a description of they brought back wild animals from all the different places that they went. They brought back uh, precious jewels and and uh, gold and silver and along with all the trade goods. And so we just see how the tremendous wealth and prosperity that God gave to the kingdom. So the conclusion in verses 23 uh, 25, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart, so that knowledge of Solomon goes out throughout the ancient world, and along with that would be knowledge of God. This is what the same kind of thing that had brought word to the Queen of Sheba. Uh, verse 25, they brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. In verse 26, now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. What did Deuteronomy 17 say? Don't multiply to yourself horses. So we've seen, saw, I showed you pictures last time, some of the pictures from uh, Megiddo, where the, you can see the stables of Solomon there, and uh, from uh, Hatzor, also where he stationed chariots. So he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, what was the problem with this? The problem is, as he accumulated wealth, and as he built up his army, the temptation is now to trust in your own resources for security rather than trusting in God. And see, that's the same thing that we do when we fail the prosperity test. We have... Uh, whatever God has provided for us in terms of financial resources, in terms of a home, in terms of whatever investments you have, this it, we, we tend to trust in that rather than trusting in God to provide for us. And this is the failure. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. We saw that last time, Megiddo, Hatzor, uh, two or three other towns, um, Gezer, 1 Kings 10.27, the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. 
and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. And also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. Q is Cilicia up in uh, the area of modern Turkey. What, he, what the writer is saying here is that he imported horses from south in Egypt and north in Cilicia, not just, not just from those two uh, locations. And, of course, God had prohibited this. Why? Because what he's doing is he's building his own, uh, his own wealth. He's just accumulating this for his own glory and his own prestige. And as we'll see when he dies... There's going to be one of the early tax revolts in history, and the ten northern tribes will leave because his son is going to increase what is described as an already burdensome tax system. And so there ends up being a, uh, a huge revolt. So this is not accumulating wealth to the nation, but it's Solomon is expanding his own glory. Verse 29. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. So what we see when we go through this is that Solomon is failing the prosperity test, and this is the backdrop for the book of Ecclesiastes. And the, the prosperity test is one of the tests that, we don't handle very well, and I have about eight or nine points on the prosperity test, but since it's two minutes to nine, I'm not even going to start that until we come back next Tuesday night, and then we'll get into the prosperity test and how Solomon and you and I fail the prosperity test and what our focus ought to be. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word tonight, to focus on these things, to be reminded that you have blessed us in tremendous ways. Just the fact that we live in this nation, we've been blessed with many, many things. And yet, both personally and, in, and, and nationally, there have been a failure to truly appreciate uh, the prosperity and to continue to focus on you. And we are truly warned as a nation that because we have turned our attention away from you, that there are harsh consequences looming on the horizon as the buildup of decades of arrogant policies can eventually uh, bring about their disastrous results. Father, we pray that for us individually as believers that we might recognize that whether we are living in good times or bad, our stability, our happiness, our joy, comes from you. It comes from your word. It comes from our relationship with you. And whether we are living in prosperity or adversity, like the Apostle Paul says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us because we have learned to be happy in any and all circumstances by dependence upon your word. And we pray that you would challenge, continue to challenge us with the uh, truth of your word and the need to depend upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.